You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Films and Friends. My name is Josh. I am joined as ever by Tobias. We back. We here. How's it going? I think our listeners will be very happy to know that it is not just us talking to each other this week. We are joined by our first guest via the magic of the internet. We are joined by Beth. Hello. So uh, how we'd like to start these, Beth, is uh, just for you to introduce yourself. Um, sort of uh, what do you do? Uh, how do you know either myself or Tobias? Um, so I'm a student and I do writing a lot. And that is how I know Tobias. Um, I've actually never met Josh or Tobias. I'm friends. I think I follow both of them on Twitter. Um, But Toby and I have become good friends through the means of Twitter. And um, it has now got to the point of isolation where I've agreed to come onto a podcast. And I am thrilled with that. (laughs) Yeah, essentially, I started getting a lot of people following me on Twitter I, not to sound popular, not to flex, but no, a couple of months ago, just more people from student media started following me on Twitter. I think, I don't know what it, what must have spread it on, maybe someone, re- some the right person retweeted me, but I've started building just a, a little bit more of a connection with more people from the Student Publishing Association and other networks, and yeah, Beth is one of these people, and yeah, we... we we homies now. We're friends. We're, homies. We're good. <laughs> so, so, Beth, what kind of um, what's your kind of focus of the journalism you do? Uh, so, I'm a big nerd, and I am the deputy editor of uh, our university politics magazine, which just all round makes me a relatively insufferable human. Um, but we focus on politics. We do also quite a lot about. We do like investigations into student culture. Um, and we do things that annoy everybody and we do some some sick reporting and it's all fun and games um and then i write opinion pieces for places that aren't student media as well which again generally very insufferable commentary on current affairs well you were on the front page of the independent website a couple weeks weeks months ago now time is an illusion i was that was fun that was for international women's day I felt great. <laughs> I do remember reading that article, actually, because I think I do follow you on Twitter, and actually you did really enjoy it, so I would recommend uh, anyone listening to this to go and seek that out, because it was a very good piece of content. Thank you. That's nice. So, yeah, so to take it to um film, I think, so for this new season, I think, and especially because we're all sort of cooped up indoors and might be looking for film recommendations, I think we're going to start a new thing every week where we just all, all three of us, just go through a film maybe we've watched in the last seven days and just, you know, just recommend it. So I think um, my one for this week is going to be LA Confidential, which I watched at the last weekend. And yeah, it's a thriller kind of mystery film with Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce. And it, yeah, it just is just kind of an enjoyable look at a 1950s noir updated a bit with sort of more modern styles, which I really enjoyed. So, uh, Toby? My recommendation is John Carpenter's They Live. I, a bit, bit of a short story behind that. Essentially, when I was 14 at school, all the cool kids started wearing hoodies with that said Obey on them. They were knockoff obey brand hoodies and my mate decided to give a presentation on the brand the actual brand obey by shepherd fairy 
And that led me down the rabbit hole of, of where the actual iconography comes from, and it comes from this film. Uh, it's a, basically an alien invasion type film, very similar to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it's a critique of uh, capitalism, where the aliens are controlling every, everyone who isn't an alien by making them consume through subliminal messaging. It's uh, kind of creepy, kind of great, and the weird thing about it is that it has a really long fight scene in the middle of it because it stars Roddy Piper, WWE wrestler, and um, Keith David. And for some for some reason, they just fight for about five minutes, and it, it's a bit awkward. But aside from that, it's a fantastic film. And Beth? Uh, so I watched Phantom Thread last night, which was a good movie. Um, it is... The, the director is Paul Thomas Anderson and it stars Daniel Day-Lewis and it was interesting. It was about a dress designer um, and basically a, a, a woman falls in love with him and she spends a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of energy trying to um, make him fall in love with her. It gets very creepy. It gets very scary. And I spent a lot of the time just being like, just, just dump him, just go. Um, <laughs> But it was a good movie, um, and it's the only one I've seen in the last seven days. Therefore, I don't actually have much other option as to what to recommend. So from there, what kind of um, films do you like? Kind of what kind of genres? What kind of actors? What kind of directors? Um, probably couldn't name any director. Sorry. Um, I am in terms of actors again, not great. I'm not fussy. I like I like people. I like people saying their words. Um, in terms of genres, I quite like action movies. Um, I like comedies. I the only thing I like kind of actively don't like are horror movies. I'm stressed enough as it is. I don't need a movie to do it for me. Um, but every other genre I'm pretty open to and I'm pretty happy with. Well, you wrote down three films here that are some of your favourites and Hidden Figures, Edward Scissorhands and Paddington. Yeah. And I'm gonna start by just kind of not grilling you but <laughs> <laughs> saying why Edward Scissorhands? I find it creepy. So I haven't watched it in a really, really long time. I think the last time I watched it was during like a GCSE class, which is a really long time ago. And I just really liked it. I think it might be like the context of me watching it as like a 14 year old maybe adds to the fact that I liked it. But I just remember thinking it was really sweet. I remember thinking it was a bit creepy. And although I know I said I don't like horrors, I kind of like movies that put you on edge a little bit, um, which I appreciated. And I just, I just enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was good. I don't, can't really comment because uh, Tim Burton skeeves me out both as an individual and the films he makes. See, yeah, that, that's how I feel about Edward Scissorhands. Although a lot of people like it because it's kind of a tale of a reject that just wants to be loved and the appearances don't matter and sure he has hands that can hurt you but he really just wants to be friends it's just creepy edward yeah. scissorhands would work better as a horror film i mean would it yeah i suppose well, i suppose you have stuff like um i suppose not so that someone like freddy krueger the sort of uh, blades aren't necessarily physically attached to his hands by surgery but i suppose it is that concept of sort of the the, the weapon is an extension of you and I guess that would work in a kind of Edward Scissorhands kind of way. Yeah, it, it would make Cronenberg very proud. There would definitely be some body horror right there. 
it is quite a body horror kind of themed film, isn't it? When you really think about it, like they they are surgically attached, aren't they? Yeah. What what's his origin story? I can't remember it. Do you remember it, Beth? I don't, but I can tell you. The, I can get out the deeds. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as we I usually do. I'm not sure it would work as a horror because I think the sort of loving, like he just wants to be loved, element wouldn't come through as much. Oh, I'm saying take out that he wants to be loved just just put oh. it in that he's so sick of being pushed around by the world that he just goes on a killing spree with his scissor hands oh, that's a completely different movie if he's yeah about, completely different if he's bitter <laughs> about being constantly referred to as edward scissor hands <laughs> he has other facets to his personality rather than just having scissors for hands <laughs> he enjoys you see how that would build up resentment oh for sure for sure i can't think of what other tim burton films i've actually seen i mean i've watched the alice in wonderland thing that was supremely creepy as well actually oh that was weird the one i watched and i used to watch it over and over and over was charlie and the chocolate factory oh yeah i forgot you did that we had it on dvd and i remember it, it was at the time when dvds actually had really good extras mm. so this one had behind the scenes clips it had full music video versions of the songs from the film and it had games, like it had a decent amount of games, which were awful to play on a DVD controller, you know, <laughs> DVD remote. But I remember just re-watching that film over and over and thinking, this is really weird and, and these, these kids are dying. These kids are straight up dying. I think I mentioned on the podcast before that when I was a kid, I was always, um, I, I used to have to make my parents turn the film off about halfway through when Veruca Salt started turning into the Blueberry because it used to really, really scare me. Well, I have a video recommendation for you, which will you'll either love or hate. Corridor Digital, which are a YouTube channel that are fantastic. They do... So they're a CGI studio. Mm. And they do videos where they, they either make a short film or they challenge each other to do something. On their second channel, they now react to CGI. They react to stunts with stuntmen. It's really, really good insight into what goes into the world of CGI and stunts. Mm -hmm. And the latest video they made is a rated R wonky Willy, where basically it's the original Willy Wonka and they've just edited it to be a gory horror film. Yeah, nice. It's, it's pretty brilliant, but also probably one of the most brutal things I've ever seen on YouTube. I'm, I'm sure not even would, kidding. I'm sure that would terrify seven-year-old Josh even more than the uh, original version did. <laughs> Do we have any updates on um, Sizzler? We do. So, he was created, his his entire existence was created by an inventor. Um, and the guy was clearly a bit of a sadist, put scissors in his hands, was going to... Oh no, I can't read, sorry. The inventor had a heart attack before finishing Edward, which therefore means... He has blades for hands. The The link isn't quite there for me, but yeah, blades for hand because the inventor died before finishing his real human hands. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to understand the process of if you're trying to build someone from the ground up. See, I Westworld... Think it's like a Frankenstein-style sitch. Could be, but the Westworld opening credits show that if you use a machine to make humans, you just have a mould, right? And you at least build a skeleton. See, I'd expect it if he had, like, a Terminator arm. But, yeah, a bit, bit scary, that. Oh, apparently here it says that it's because 
Edward started as a machine that did have scissors for hands. I think the inventor wanted to turn him into a human, but for some reason the hands were the last thing he was going to change, and then he died before he got to finish it. This is thrilling. We're reading very different things. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what I'm, I'm reading. Some random clickbait website. This could oh, be I'm reading. I'm reading Wiki, which is obviously highly credible. <laughs> oh, is it the Edward Scissorhands fan wiki with all the lore? No, it's Wikipedia. I know my sources. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an elderly woman told her granddaughter the story of a young man named Edward who has scissor blades for hands. As the creation of an old inventor, Edward is an artificially created humanoid who is almost completed. The inventor ho- homeschools Edward, but suffers a fatal heart attack before he can attach hands to Edward. Edward tries to put the hands on himself, but the blades destroy them. Hurt, Edward cuts the deceased inventor's face. I feel like this is a weird that film. alone was in a roller coaster. It does sound like a classic. T- you can see why Tim Burton was attracted to the story. Yeah. I quite like Tim Burton, just to mess things up there. <laughs> what other Tim Burton films have you seen? Uh, I couldn't tell you, but I like him. <laughs> as a person or <laughs> as just as his films? Um, no, I I think... I actually don't know much about him personally. Can't say we've hung out much. But just the stuff that he's made means that I don't like him. Mm. Um, I just He gives me the heebie-jeebies as a person. But I quite like his films. I thought Coraline was a... Tim Burton film. I googled and it is not. Well, which... he wrote it and oh. um, produced it, if I'm not mistaken, which makes a lot of sense. It's that does same... make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's the same kind of deal as Nightmare Before Christmas, that he was quite heavily involved but he wasn't actually right. technically the director or the like, main writer or something. That is, it is possibly one of my least favourite movies in the world. Oh, there we go. Hang on, my bad. So, no. So Tim Burton was not involved with Coraline. Oh. He came up with the story for Nightmare Before Christmas, which was directed by Henry Selick. And then Henry Selick directed Coraline, but Coraline is written by Neil Gaiman because it's based on his book. Interesting. I did try a rewatch of um, Coraline when I was... Um, it's like, I don't know if it was a, like after a night out or like at some point. It was just drink had been taken, put it that way, before I started watching it. And I think I made it about 25 minutes into it before I was like, nah, this is this is just not for me. Well, Becca loves it and she made me watch it a couple of months ago. I'd never seen it. And I never wanted to watch it because I thought it looked creepy and it just was unsettling. And yeah, it's creepy and unsettling, and I think it's <laughs> not a kids' film. <laughs> I saw it when it came out, and I must have been—I mean, I don't—I I can, I'm sure I can get it up, but I was young, and um, it was horrific. It is not a kids' film. I was—I think that's the only film I've been like properly rattled by. <laughs> um, yeah, t- it came out in 2009, so I was 10, and it—it it was horrible. I. No, my dad also. I went to the see in the cinema with my dad, and he always likes sitting super close to the front. Which there's no escape. How close? How close are we talking? I think we were in at least the first four rows. See, fourth row is the sweet spot for me. But anything closer, you're you're, yeah, you 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 got issues. You said the fourth row. I know. Row that's why I'm thinking it was probably the first three. Yes, I sit closer to the screen now because of my. Uh, lazy eye even though i wear my glasses that correct it um it's a lot easier to focus on the screen if i'm a bit closer than a bit further away uh, fair no I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of um you've got to find halfway 
about yes. halfway is good. About halfway is good for me, but depends on the size of the screen, though. I'm thinking of Home, which has really tiny screens. Oh, no, I was thinking of um, View or something. So this was massive. I was a fourth row there. Like When I watched, um, I think it was the it was Deathly Hallows Part 1, the Harry Potter film. When I, I watched that in the cinema, it came out when I was like late for the showing. And I think I sat in like the first row. And it was the worst thing I've ever done to myself. It's basically like looking vertically for about two hours, which weirdly isn't good for anything in your body. No, I can, I can, I can bet. But Beth, you were saying the repressed memory. Is Coraline. I will also just chime in and agree that right in the middle is the best place to watch a movie. Um, but yeah, no, repressed memory is watching Coraline. I don't actually remember much from it, except that I despise it <laughs> with a burning passion. So to take the conversation a bit more wholesome, one of the <laughs> films you've included here that I think me and Tobias are both big fans of as well is uh, Paddington. Yes. Paddington is elite. But wait, Paddington 1 or 2, which one's better? Both. No, no, yeah, you have to pick one. You have to pick one. I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, but <laughs> yeah. there can only be one. God, I'm sweating. Um, two is really, really good. I think I want to say one, but I've seen one more than I've seen two. Mm, I've seen two more than I've seen one. Josh, you might have to be the like tie break here. You might have to make the, the decision. I've seen them both uh, once each, and I prefer Paddington one. Ooh, right. I'll, I'll I'll allow you to have that one. I don't but think Paddington One doesn't make me cry like a baby every single time. Yeah, I... see, both do. I think the expansion of the lore in the second one doesn't do doesn't really help the films much as I think they would like to think it does. I like the simplicity of the first one more. It doesn't really expand the lore in the second one though. It's just, well, I mean, there is that the beginning of the film, the the prologue. But aside from that, there's not really much more backstory to explore there i think i think it's just more the expansion of maybe not laws perhaps slightly the wrong word i think so it sort of i think making the film sort of bigger and including more people in it doesn't necessarily make the film better and i also quite like the first one it's a very self-contained story and it very much comes back around at the end and it's, it's, it's sort of you finish the film and it's like that feels a very complete thing but i feel like the second one was just kind of doing that again with a different i feel like children's films do inevitably suffer particularly with the sort of sequel fatigue because it does feel like they're just doing the same thing with a different bad guy. And they do explore kind of different things within that. But I, I struggle to kind of um, reconcile that with whether or not I enjoy the film more. And I think, especially in children's films, I really appreciate uh, simplicity. Okay, okay, I see that. But th- the way to refute that is that Hugh Grant is the way better villain. Yeah, that that is... To be fair, that is, that is the one hole in my argument, is I do really actually like Hugh Grant as the villain in Paddington. Beth, which villain do you prefer? I think I get more angry at the villain in, in 2, but I think 2. I think I prefer the villain in 2. But my issue is Paddington 2 is pretty much what I'd class as, for me, an action movie that I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, what before we move on to stuff you don't like, what other action films do you enjoy? Deadpool. I'm going to have to give Deadpool credit. It's actually bloody funny yeah deadpool and deadpool 2 i didn't two. see the second one it's a lot gorier than the first which surprised me that that was possible um, is it still pg-13 i don't know that fact off the top of my head don't think um, the first one was pg-13 up. i think the first one was at least a 15 if not an 18 it yeah deadpool 2 is a 15 and oh. deadpool 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 was also a 15 
I don't know. I I did. I I enjoyed the second one, and I thought the villain, um, Josh Brolin as Cable, was really good as a villain for the film. But I think if you've seen the first one, you've pretty much seen the second one because it's, it's pretty much the same kind of shtick. It is just kind of a a very meta break the fourth wall superhero film where the Avengers and stuff, the MCU is considered to be lesser, and we're laughing at how sort of um much more adult he is and i did like a lot i really like the first one i think the first one really broke down a barrier for sort of that element of our superhero movies i think the second one kind of rehashed it again and i wasn't necessarily as overly struck on it as i was the first one if i'm being totally honest in much less eloquent terms i would agree with you i think it was just the same thing but because i liked the first one i kind of like the second one too so you think that confuses me is that being someone who doesn't follow superhero films that much, Josh Brolin is Cable, but he's also Thanos, which I find quite funny. <laughs> so he is two villains. One, yeah, two villains in two different Marvel properties that in the comics are actually the same universe. However, because of the wonderful world of film rights, they aren't the same universe in the films so that always gets me it's the same with um technically um chris evans is actually johnny storm from uh, fantastic four as well as captain america that is very true that is very true see who plays johnny storm in four f- f- what was it for f- f- fantastic fan four stick fan four stick it is the guy who plays creed and what was his oh name? yeah Oh, he's also in the MCU, isn't he? Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, yes. Michael B. Jordan. And he plays... Killmonger. Black Panther. Oh, Killmonger, my bad. Yeah, Black Panther's um, the other... Uh, Chadwick Boseman. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, see, that's why it all blurs in my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's the, the sort of the world of superhero films is very complicated. <laughs> Jeez. Beth, do you enjoy the the cheeky Marvel film? I do. I feel like I don't have the energy to invest in understanding what's going on because they are all like so interlinked and there's so much that you have to understand before you see one and you have to understand it by watching another that I've just not, just not, which I think is why I like Deadpool because actually I like Deadpool and um, I've seen some of the Spider-Man movies. I don't remember which ones, but I've seen them and I like them. Um, but I just, I, I just don't. I feel like it's an investment, and it's not one I can make. See that—that's where I see. That's the feeling I have. It's the investment. That's how I feel with really big TV shows, or with Marvel films, or even X-Men. Like I know some of the X-Men film are. At, are actually really good but you have to go through so much rubbish to get to it and actually understand it all that i just can't be bothered i'm very i'm too fair i'm not i'm not that interested in it in that sense but i am heavily invested in it because i've been watching them since like since i was very young so like for me i think i've mentioned it on the podcast before but for me like as much as infinity war i didn't 
critic is sort of with my sort of critic hat on of sort of um, appreciating the film in a vacuum. I didn't enjoy it that much. For me, as someone who sort of grew up watching all of the Marvel films, and I have seen pretty much all of them now, I think that for me, like the bit at the end, the bit that always gets me, it's like the bit where um, Captain America picks up Thor's hammer. And, and there's that video that went viral of everyone like cheering in the cinema. Like that's the feeling I got from it because I had that investment in it. And I think on a critical level, it probably is less deep than that. But for me, it was that kind of thing. And I think actually on the thing you've mentioned, Beth, I think actually weirdly, if you look at which are the best films from the MCU, so stuff like Black Panther or like the first Guardians of the Galaxy film, they're the ones that you can watch without knowing any of the rest of the lore. And I think that might perhaps be something that's actually the strength of strength of the films in it. The best ones are the ones that don't rely heavily on sort of having to watch the rest of them, like the sort of sequels and stuff like that. I will have to look at that. I haven't seen those, so I will. Have you seen Iron Man 1? Uh, no. That one, I think, is actually quite good. Uh, directed by Jon Favreau, which... His versatility always surprises me, because he also did Chef, which is another fantastic film. And Elf. He did Elf. Did he do Elf? Yeah, that was Jon Favreau. He's in it. He's the doctor in it. Well, there we go. Man of many talents. <laughs> but enough of us dunking on Marvel because we don't like it. Beth... What don't you like in film? In terms of which films do I not like or what specifically in a film do I not like? Why not both? Oh. Um, I get really annoyed, and this is the same actually with... Well, it translates as well into like my taste in songs. I really get annoyed at the way that a lot of films and a lot of books and a lot of movies and um, songs present women and like relationships and romance and stuff so that I feel like if I watch something and that starts to annoy me very early on I will probably get bored um films I don't like I have already expressed my severe distaste for Coraline um I feel like I don't watch enough movies to not like a lot of them um but I think ones that are unnecessarily creepy and scary and then generally the wider issue of, like, the presentation of, of women. Those are my two criteria. What specifically about the presentation of women is it that is the focus of what you don't like in a film? Should have interest? So I think most movies have, like, a love story within it. And it very much annoys me when it's the classic thing of either, like, a, you know, a woman will, like, change her life to be with a man, or even the other way around. Um, that really annoys me, because I, I just think it's silly. Um, I don't like it when um, sort of women are very much only existing to support the storyline of a male character. So the... Do you know the the Bechdel test? Is that what it's called? Bechdel yeah. test? Yeah. Yeah, so that I don't think is like incredible all round, but I think it's a good measure and it surprises me how many films fail it and books as well. Um, so I think things like that when women are just there for men rather than for their own storyline. And then also the quite classic trope, which I hope is starting to die out, but of like, woman has a makeover and then suddenly man realises she exists and they fall in love just annoys me yeah that's the, but, too fair that has I think that what well, that is specifically is one of the ones that has probably gone down recently like perhaps like the 90s and stuff like that 
Um, on that note, actually, weirdly, I read a really good article that I'd highly recommend to anyone listening um, on Little White Lies, like last week, and it was about uh, the trope in film of um, sort of men pursuing women to a degree that in society we'd consider to be creepy. Well, that that conversation about the way men pursue women is why I really like the Netflix show You. Because the whole idea of the romantic comedy and the fact that, you know, but the guy, if he's hot and he wants to chase a woman and he climbs up to a window at night and knocks on it, is romantic, isn't really romantic in real life. I think most people would agree that if that actually happened to them, they'd be quite scared. So the fact that you subverts that trope and takes it to the extreme of him being a psycho stalker, spoilers if you haven't watched more than... 10 minutes of the first episode <laughs> is, is one of the reasons why I love it I actually watched a video of I don't know his name but the guy who plays Joe in You um, Penn Badgley there you go and he was having a conversation um, with the actress that plays Jane and Jane the Virgin um, and they were talking about You and he was saying how that is the point and how essentially the point of view is to have a very classically attractive male protagonist um pursue a woman and and show that it's really really creepy but um i think there are a lot of people that still kind of dig it there's a good um in, there's some good interviews as well with um joseph gordon levitt from um, the time he was in 500 days of summer and it's him talking about, I don't know if you've ever seen 500 Days of Summer, but basically it's about Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. And Zoe Deschanel basically is up front with him and says she doesn't really want a relationship. And then they sort of get together a bit. And then in the end, she's like, actually, no, I don't want this relationship. And he gets really like, annoyed about it. And it sort of explores kind of his anger about what happened and how he believes that she misled him. And in like, interviews and stuff, he always talks about how people always tell him that... Uh, his character in that film is like, oh, I really wish I was like him. He's such a good guy. And then he's like, actually, the point of the film isn't that he's a good guy throughout the whole film. The whole the point of the film is that he grows as a person because the person he is at the beginning that people sort of idolise. I oh, really like the Smiths and stuff. He is a horrible person. And it's, it's stuff like that that people... That it's weird that some sort of films that are sort of quasi-romantic are actually negative towards the male protagonist, but people somehow find the positives in them and sort of hold them up as sort of sort of romantic anti-heroes in a way i, I mean, think just... movies have an innate Sorry. ability to make everything sort of seem um like very romantic and like a good a good thing we should just strive for There's those movies movies um one friends with benefits and then another is called something different that has the exact same premise and storyline um and i want to say the one i'm thinking of has ashton kutcher and uh Kim... I've forgotten the actress's name. Is it No Strings um, Attached? Yes. Yeah. Um, but it is essentially a movie about like really poor communication and when two people don't respect each other's boundaries and then everyone, and then they fall in love and everyone's like, yeah, it's great. And I think those movies sort of irk me. I mean, they're the movies that I watch, <laughs> but they irk me nonetheless. On your list, you mention uh, When Harry Met Sally. And because we're talking about romantic comedies and, and the portrayal of relationships, how do you feel about the relationship portrayed in that film? I'm trying to remember. So I watched it a few weeks ago. Um, 
with I'm really bad at paying attention to movies so I feel like I sort of dip in and out um mentally but I remember oh, it's it's coming back we're here I've got it um it kind of annoyed me I think there's very rarely a relationship in a movie where I'm like that's good stuff that's I approve of this um I think it annoyed me a lot there was like no communication I thought that they messed up a lot but then I also appreciate them like being pals and then but I think realistically I understand that a good healthy sort of seamless relationship makes for pretty like boring television um or cinema and I think I wouldn't necessarily recommend a like when Harry met Sally style relationship if someone's if someone's a looking um but yeah I wouldn't necessarily say that's one of my favorite movies it is one that I can remember watching yeah I guess that that is understandable I think um I don't think it, it is perhaps not the it isn't definitely isn't the healthiest relationship I think um in terms of the way the sort of friendship is portrayed between the sort of male and female um Meg Ryan and it's the guy who voices Mike Wazowski that I never forget Billy Crystal that's it yeah Billy Crystal and yeah I think it is one of I think it's one of the more healthy rom-coms and I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of endured in its popularity I think especially because what it did for sort of um in terms of making the woman in the film a more sort of um giving her more agency because the film is very much not about sort of um Harry being a kind of dick and her sort of even despite that being like, oh I still love him and stuff like there are mo- lots of moments of that film where she is willingly calling him out on the sort of his stuff he says and his actions and stuff and I think that in the terms of the in the long term sort of canon of romantic films sort of and I think especially as it was written by someone such a great writer like Nora Ephron I think it was a massive turning point in kind of and it isn't definitely isn't perfect by any means but it is definitely it was a turning point in sort of giving a more female voice to rom-coms as opposed to men sort of writing what they wish would happen in their lives if that makes sense yeah I think that's I think it was more it was a movie obviously about their relationship but I think it was a movie about two individuals and how they fit together in a relationship be that romantic or platonic Mm -hmm. whereas I think a lot of romantic movies and movies with a strong romantic storyline focus on either the man or the woman and them like one or the other pursuing or putting up with the other one and I felt that this was relatively equal in its kind of coverage of the lives of these two individuals and I thought that was pretty good. Have you seen it Toby? Oh, when Harry Met Sally, yeah. yeah, it's my brother's favorite film or one of his favorites, and I really quite like it as well. Mm. I just the equal aspect of the relationship and the way they're portrayed definitely stands out. It's something I do remember about it, and I just think it's so cleverly written, so witty in the way it. It presents the quips of, of um, I mean, Harry is, is he, at the end of the day, he's a funny guy, but 
there's something timeless about it and something incredibly relatable, whereas so many romantic comedies are very much a daydream that you're reading on a summer's day and you're like, yeah, this is very clearly a, a, almost a fairy tale. It just so happens to not have any magic in it. But When Harry Met Sally does feel quite grounded and I do quite enjoy it. I don't think that When Harry Met Sally would be a worse film if they hadn't got together at the end. I think if they'd acknowledged that they did like each other, but it just was never going to work, I think that film would be equally good. And I think that was one of the things also in terms of like romantic films, it's sort of in that vein. I think it's one of the reasons I quite enjoyed La La Land, if you've either of you have seen that. And not to spoil it or anything, if people haven't seen it. But the way it does portray their relationship, it, it does sort of touch on aspects of codependence, but then it really makes it clear that that isn't healthy in a relationship and that that doesn't, like... Although it is arguably, it's the, the whole point of La La Land is, is a kind of fairy tale to an extent, but there's a very clear switch in it where they get to the point of like, actually, no, like being a struggling artist, there's nothing romantic about that because it is kind of tearing our relationship apart. And I think that their sort of realisation of the reality rather than sort of the Hollywood aspect of relationships is quite powerful. And it was one of the reasons why that's another sort of romantic-esque film that I do actually really enjoy. I watched La La Land after a breakup. And uh, it was not fun. <laughs> like throughout the whole film, I was like, "Yeah, this is a pretty great film. Like, I enjoy the musical numbers and the relationship." And then right at the end, right at the end, when it shows that it's not going to work, I was like, "This is too close to home, man. I'm not enjoying this." So that was a bit of a heartbreaker. I have never seen it, uh, but I will prepare to be sad. I don't know if it is. That's the thing, though. I don't know if it is that sad because it is sad to an extent, but I think it is. It, it finishes on actually quite a hopeful note because I think it makes you, it does sort of finish on that aspect of um, sort of you don't have to be, in a, the relationship isn't the thing that need, you need in your life to make you happy. It's something that sort of is something that goes alongside your other goals and it, a healthy relationship should fit into that as opposed to your sole purpose in life is to be in that relationship regardless of what else happens. And I think that is a trope that a lot of films do fall into. Like, oh, it's fine, we'll be fine as long as we have this relationship regardless of what we're doing in our personal lives, which is presumably quite an unhealthy way to... I mean, I'm not a relationship counsellor or anything, but I would think that is probably a very unhealthy way to live your life and your relationship with your relationship, if that makes sense. I think there's a fine balance in movies to be struck between like if the if the main storyline is one that centers around a romance making that like idealistic and making it a good movie from that sort of from that from that love affair mm -hmm. but also as you say like making it healthy because I think movies are such a big part of why we now romanticize the idea of finding this like one true love whereas I think if they were portrayed more realistically, that that would help, and that would that is it's just more healthy. Again, not a relationship counselor, but uh, <laughs> that's my two cents. Well, a film that is kind of the opposite of a romantic comedy is uh, Shame with Michael Fassbender, and it's directed by Steve McQueen, and it's not old school actress Steve McQueen; it's director Steve McQueen. Two different people. <laughs> And I, I remember watching it over Christmas. I remember it was recommended on someone's letterboxed. And it's a film about a sex addict. But it's just crippling, depressive, dark 
like it's 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 rough it shows that he can't keep any relationship going with any woman like he just can't do it he can't find the healthy aspect of finding out what's interesting about someone else finding out common middle ground having a laugh together like he can't like his life is completely revolved around his addiction and it, it, it it's soul crushing like it's a pretty brutal film but it very much shows the opposite of what romantic com- comedies are it, it's, it's the other side of the story i guess yeah, that's. Is it, I think there is a weirdly fine balance between them, and I mean this is this is something I do struggle with a lot when I sort of um sort of look at sort of the cultural impacts of films that I watch, and I think it's very difficult to know where the line, where the line is between what is sort of what is expression of a thing that happens in the world, because I think creating a romantic comedy where sort of things happen, where they do bad things happen and they do get together at the end in spite of everything else. Criticism of some characters in certain films that they are unhealthy characters which portray something that people might look up to, right? Whereas it is inevitably stuff that happens in real life. So it's films that sort of, um, when people say sort of films about like serial killers can be sort of um, sort of sexist. And you sort of think that it is inherently, yes it is, but to the same extent, we sort of it's like American Psycho. I'm sure people would criticise oh, American Psycho is a really sexist film because the way it treats degrades women. Whereas that's kind of the point. And I think you have the same thing of sort of romantic comedies to an extent of where you you're not 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 necessarily that responsible for the sort of the overall social impact of it because you are telling a story of something that could potentially happen in the world, and it is it is art. And I guess that's the fine balance between what is art and what is creating a genuinely negative social image that people may or may not follow. Yeah, I'm. Th- I mean, thinking about American Psycho it just reminds me of a uh, someone I know from uni um, was posting on Facebook, and she had a was having a go at American Psycho and saying how the it's, it's such a sexist book and such a sexist film, and it and it's awful, and. It's like the point of the book is to take the piss out of this character and it's a very it's almost a time capsule of the time it was written because it it's a, a piss take of yuppies but the film was uh and I should remember the name I I'm not great but was directed by a woman yeah Mary, the whole point Ma- of Mary Haron There we go the and the point of the film is to just yeah again destroy this character in the eyes of the audience and show that well he is actually terrible um and he is actually a misogynist and 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 a complete sociopath but that's the point that is the point of the character i haven't actually seen american psycho um so i feel like i can't weigh in specifically but i think generally speaking it it's important to still have films that um act as criticism of things like um again i'm completely making this up because i have no idea what even american psycho is about but for things about uh like men treating women in in general in relationships i think they're still really important but i think there is a line to toe to make sure that it is clear that the point is a criticism of the structures which the structures which cause those mistreatments 
or um, the individuals that cause those mistreatments rather than just like a, hey, aren't, aren't women awful? <laughs> I guess that's the thing. I think, it, I suppose it has to be perhaps clear from, not perhaps like a sort of really, really obvious, but like it is definitely, it can't just be a reading of it. It has to be sort of the definitive reading of it because Amer- especially American Psycho, there's no way you're going to watch American Psycho and come out of it thinking, yeah, no, he, he had quite a lot of good points, actually. I think he was, he, was, he was doing some good work there. Like, that is very clear that the film is a satire of that kind of attitude. And perhaps that is where something like 500 Days of Summer does fall down, is that when I watched it when I was 14, I never picked up on it at all, when I was definitely in the camp of, uh, yeah, the, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character seems like a fairly alright kind of guy and then I watched it again just before Christmas last year weirdly I actually did it as like a double bill with them um, when Harry met Sally which was a poor choice of thing to do it with because when you compare it against that it really doesn't hold up at all but um, yeah and I sort of realised the second time like yeah god I can't believe I actually thought that and yeah I'm glad that it, I don't think it really Im- impacted me that much even though I watched when I was 14 but to that extent it should have probably been a bit more clear that he is an awful person see you you will only realise that you were a soft boy once you move out of the soft boy phase. <laughs> it, it's, it's the way of the world. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, just to go on to our final question, sort of the, the question we'd like to sort of finish on on the podcast, is just, uh, so what kind of films were meaningful to you as a child? So this is a really... My answers, I think, were a bit weird. My brother and I would do most things together when we were a kid or when we were kids and um he used to have like separate lives i don't necessarily see his movies but when we were a kid there were points where we would watch the same movie like twice a day every day for maybe like two three weeks maybe longer um so there are some movies like the sound of probably probably can can recite word for word um charlie and the chocolate factory there was an obsession with that one too um lots of those and then finding nemo is one that i said because it's the first time i've ever seen the cinema and i went with my grandparents yeah weirdly actually the first film i saw in the cinema was actually uh, finding nemo as well it must have been one of the first i watched in the cinema because the mem one my early cinema memory is and this is fantastic (laughs) was um watching monsters inc and spilling a drink on myself so my mum had to get us a taxi home got me changed and then we went back into the cinema and caught the end of the film i i i do remember that very vaguely i think that was monsters inc but it might have been finding nemo but it's an age thing it is an age thing i'm currently watching friends yes very polarizing tv show love it or hate it and before watching it, I was pretty sure that the series began and concluded in the 90s. But it actually finished in like 2003, 2004. So it's really quite interesting to be watching a TV show where at the beginning of the show, there were no um, wireless landline phones. And towards the end, they're calling each other on small mobile phones. And they even make a joke about big mobile phones. And stuff like the fashion and just the way the world is making jokes around what's happening around them. It's quite weird to think, well, that's the world we were born into. Mm. It's almost like a time capsule. 
Yeah, I think that's something that's quite nice about watching the old sitcoms and stuff. Depending on how old, even like watching um the first series of How I Met Your Mother, it's quite interesting because there's a joke in it about like um. It was, so it was 2005 and there was a joke about like the start of online dating and how awful it was and then by the time you've got to like the latter series like 2014 they talk about like proper like, online dating which obviously become an actual thing and it's sort of looking at it through that lens of sort of like it really is a sort of I mean yeah that's something that cinema is and especially I think TV shows do it a lot better because you can track sort of progression over time and they're very interesting. It's very yeah. TV shows are very much a time capture of their period. And when you really like look for it, it actually does tell you quite a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, and the film that is actually really good time capsule of the era that it portrays is Uncut Gems. It takes place in 2012, Passover 2012, and it's perfectly encapsulates the cars, the uh, clothing, the conversation topics, the music. Everything about 2012 is there, and it's quite uncanny. It's quite spooky, actually. I didn't quite realise it till about a third of the way through the film when I was watching it. And then once you realise it, it is really, really strange, because it's really well done. Beth, have you seen Uncut Gems? I haven't, but I want to. It sounds very good. You really should, because as I mentioned over and over on the podcast, my dissertation is about how... Um, uh, Jews are represented on film and Beth and I talk about this a lot <laughs> it's we do. one of our, our main conversation topics um, over DMs and yeah you, you, you'd actually really enjoy Uncut Gems because as well as being this time capsule one of the points I'm going to make in my dissertation is that it's kind of the it brings in a new wave of Jewish cinema because it really takes a ton of Jewish stereotypes, shows them in one of their most extreme forms, um, and then also moves right past them and presents a, a character that's flawed for so many reasons that aren't really tied to him being like, oh, he's a criminal because he's Jewish. Like, it really, really changes the way Jews are shown on screen. Apologies for the boring comment, but for any nerds out there... <laughs> I've actually been meaning to slide into your DMs on this specific question, but since it's about, it's not about film, it's about a TV show. Um, what's your opinion on Friday Night Dinner? I've, see, he, I've not yet seen it. Becca <gasps> really likes it, and I've been told that it is quite funny. And I, it, Is the family Jewish, or is it, like, one of the friends? Yeah, so they're Jewish? a Jewish family, and it is, like... Every episode is another one of their Friday night dinners and generally something a bit like ridiculous happens, which is not really related to them being Jewish. Um, but they always like, they always have challah. They always have like their next door neighbor who is a goyim say like, shalom <laughs> when he walks in the door. And I think it, toes the line quite well in my opinion between like taking the mick out of what like a kind of crazy jewish family is like um like coming from one they are all it is accurate um, <laughs> but also like not not being not being not being bad I, I, to be fair, someone who I know admittedly very little about Jewish culture, 
but as, as sort of an objective observer, it is a, the first two series especially are their fantastic um, sitcoms, and I think it is. I think it's getting more sort of cultural awareness now, sort of people knowing about it. But like back when it was in its first couple of series, it was actually a really underrated thing of a Channel 4's comedy output. So I would highly recommend it to anyone, especially now you've said that. I think watching it again with sort of trying to look at it from that more sort of cultural angle is actually quite an interesting thing to do. Yeah, I, I'm, to summarise that, yeah, I, I will check out uh, Friday Night Dinner at some point. I uh, Mainly when it comes to my dissertation, I'm looking at film. I've, I've made sure to limit it to film, so I haven't spent too much thought looking at TV shows or researching TV shows. So that's my, uh, my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that pretty much, I think we've covered a lot of good stuff there. And I think uh, on the subject of dissertations and projects and things, I do have to do some more uni work, unfortunately. Ah, fantastic. Me too. But, uh, thank you very much for coming on, Beth. Uh, if you'd like to thank plug you for anything, if you'd like to plug anything, now is your opportunity to do so. Um, no, just like save the bees and stay inside. <laughs> no, I, I'm going to plug something for Beth. Go check out Beth's writing. Beth, <laughs> your magazine, Insight Magazine, has some really, really good stuff on there. And your own freelance stuff that is everywhere and anywhere is also fantastic. So go look at Beth. Um, what what where's the main portal to find your work? Um, I don't have a portfolio yet, which is probably something I should get doing. Um, if if you follow me on Twitter for all sorts of bad takes, I also post all the stuff I write. <laughs> fantastic. So thank you for listening beth thank you for coming on thank and you very much for having me we will be back next week with a new guest uh who's a new friend <laughs> for <laughs> for the listeners or we might bring someone back Who we knows? mentioned that last episode we we are working on doing part twos the sequels for people who've come on the show before you can find me on twitter at josh sandy and on instagram and Lesbox at josh w sandy and you can find me everywhere at Tobias Soar. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.